How did the army mobilize for the Spanish-American War? What were the army actions in the Philippine insurrection? What was the army role in developing the Panama Canal? And what was the significance of Walter Reed's discovery of the causes of yellow fever? For answers to these questions and more Army History Insights, stay tuned. Welcome to the U.S. Army History and Heritage Podcast, the official podcast of the United States Army's Center of Military History. The Center of Military History writes and publishes the Army's official history, manages the U.S. Army Museum Enterprise, and provides historical support throughout the U.S. Army. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. I'm Lee Reynolds, the Strategic Communications Officer for the Center of Military History. In this episode, we're examining the U.S. Army role in the Spanish-American War and the development of the Panama Canal. I'm speaking today with CMH historian Dr. Matthew Marges. Welcome, Matt, and thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here again. Great. Yeah, thanks for coming on back. And so for those who, who don't know Dr. Marges, uh, he works with the U.S. Army Center of Military History as the historian for the Office of the Chief of Staff of the Army. He has been with CMH since 2017. Prior to taking his current position, he worked as a researcher in the Histories Division. His area of expertise is late 19th century and early 20th century military professionalization. Perfect for this time period, for these next couple of episodes. So we got the right guy here, that's for sure. So he graduated with a PhD from Iowa State University in 2016. His dissertation, America's Progressive Army, How the National Guard Grew Out of Progressive Era Reforms, won the Karras Award for Outstanding Dissertation in 2017, an awesome achievement. Congratulations. He's currently converting his dissertation into a manuscript for publication. Dr. Marges has written articles on African-American service during World War I and numerous book reviews. He recently published a chapter on consolidating gains during Operation Market Garden during World War II uh, in an Army University press volume on large-scale combat operations. Well, that's a lot. Any, anything I'm missing there, Matt? That no, we I think that, that about covers it. All right, perfect. Well, let's roll right into it then. All right. So let's start with an overview of the strategic information. What led to a American involvement in the Spanish-American War, and how prepared was the Army at the start of the war? Yeah, so there were a, a lot of kind of strands going on at once. Um, and this is during, you know, po the post-Civil War period. The, Ar the United States is kind of in this, you know, continental expansion Frederick Jackson Turner writes that the frontier has ended. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's there's a lot of things going on, including what was perceived as a crisis of masculinity due to industrialization. And so there was this element in society led by people like uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who was not, of course, president yet. Um, but people, this kind of hawkish element who believed that America was losing its spirit and it needed to kind of expand almost expand or die. That wasn't their words, but that right. was kind of the idea. Um, so there was definitely an imperialistic kind of fervor that was growing. On top of that, there was also the actual situation in Cuba um, where you had the Spanish, um, particularly under General Valierno Whaler, who begins in 
the mid-1890s, this reconcentration policy. So there was a, a popular uprising in Cuba. There was a Cuban push for independence against the Spanish. Um, and so a lot of Americans saw this as sort of a more of the American spirit, right? The right. revolution against uh, European imperialism, colonial rule, that, those types of things. Absolutely. Yeah. So there was there was a little there was support uh, in the United States, popular support at least for uh, the Cuban kind of rebels. Right. Um, and so these are all kinds of strands that are kind of coming together all at once. Um, with the election of of William McKinley, uh, his predecessor over Cleveland had kind of taken a um, a hands-off approach mm -hmm. to the to the situation um he is going to be much more involved and there's he he's kind of taking that imperialistic mm. push and in february he, he, he was elected when was it that was he it was an 18 96 election okay. so he he's mm -hmm. inaugurated in 1897 okay cool. um and it, the uss maine is kind of the catalyst right the in off the coast of Cuba in February of 1898. So why was the Maine there? The Maine was there as sort of a a show of force in, mm. a, in a way. Um, and it, the explosion at the time, they just simply blamed it on a Spanish mine. Mm -hmm. uh, we know now that there was a boiler problem and it was actually oh, not wow. caused by a, a, an enemy mine. Uh, but that was the, the initial sort of announcement. Yeah. Um, and then shortly thereafter, there's some commentary in Spanish press basically saying, you know, William McKinley doesn't have the gall to do anything. Oh, wow. uh, he, that gets back to him. Um, and so in April of 1898 is when the U.S. starts to build up its, its force there, its presence there, mostly naval. And then war is finally declared on April 21st, 1898. Um, oh, wow. Okay. And then because of the main... That, uh, you know, I, I remember there's talk of yellow journalism, right? So there was this fervor, this imperialistic fervor, I guess, with the administration. But then the newspapers just took it and ran with it. Yeah, absolutely. And th they ran with the story. Again, they, there's a lot of journeying up of, of popular support for this. Right. Uh, it, there's also another element that sometimes gets overlooked, but this is, a, this is shortly after... Um, the, the white man's burden is released. Um, that, that concept of, you know, Anglo-Saxon imperialism to, to oversee this, this heavily racist, heavily, you know, but, it, but it's based on this pseudoscience that in general European people were, they, they had to kind of oversee and, and, and support um, basically people of color uh, in oh. these. In, in, and so a lot of Americans just sort of saw it as their duty to help the Cuban, almost as oh, though okay. the Cubans were like a, mm -hmm. a, a ch like children is how they kind of saw it. Oh. Um, so again, very, very kind of heavily racist, um, but that's also playing into this. And of course, newspapers and mm -hmm. articles and journals are, are just running with that. And then the Remember the Maine, you know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yep. So, okay, so <clears throat> war is declared. And how is the how ready is the army to, to go on over there and the U.S. The United States Army in 1898 is woefully unprepared for any overseas undertaking. Mm. Uh, the Army strength had been capped by Congress in the year. It had diminished after the Civil War, just mm -hmm. reduce, 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 to the point that by 1898, the Army strength is capped at 26,000 officers and men. So 26,000. So that is wow. the size of the regular Army. Now, there is the militia. Uh, there's about 115,000, give or take. 
um, men in the militia across the country. Now, something I'll, we'll talk about maybe later or, or in another segment is the militia was in various states of readiness. Mm-hmm. So some states were pretty good, some states not so much. And on top of that, in 1898, there was no way to just simply federalize the militia. The president, right. like today, the president could just say the National Guard is now federalized. They couldn't do that yet. There was no way to just incorporate the militia into the army. So it's generally in a, in a huge state of just complete, like, they, they just were unprepared for this. Um, and so one of the big questions is going to be just how do they build the army and how do they get it ready for this? Mm-hmm. So how do they? You know, what's um, how do they put that in motion? Because we go from 26,000 and then 115,000, I think you said, in, in the militias. Did we even call it the National Guard then, or was it still militia? They called themselves the National Guard. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really there was nothing national about it yet. That's mm-hmm. going to come in 1903. Um, right. But the the association with militia had gotten so bad in the mm-hmm. 1870s that people just associated the militia with a bunch of drunks on on, uh-huh. on weekend duty. Uh-huh. That states kind of started calling themselves the National mm-hmm. Guard, uh, kind of out of the French model <laughs> of the French National Guard. But there was nothing national about it. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. So how did we mobilize? How did we get to the and, and, and talk about what the ultimate force was that went into uh, to the war. So there, there's a couple questions of how to do it. And um, Congressman John A.T. Hull from Iowa introduces one bill uh, that would have raised the size of the regular army to about 120,000. Um, but it didn't incorporate the militia in any way. And you had mentioned, are they, they call themselves a the National Guard yet? Mm-hmm. Well, there was the National Guard Association. Oh. Um which had formed earlier, and they were basically officers from around the states, and they were effectively a lobbying group at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were completely opposed to this measure, of course, because it didn't involve the militia at all. Uh, so that kind of gets thrown out. Um, and what's replaced with it on the day after war is declared on April 22nd, uh, the Art, the Mobilization Act passes. Mm-hmm. This is basically an updated version of the Civil War style mobilization, where President McKinley calls for 60,000 volunteers. Uh, Congress authorizes the regular army to expand up to Mm -hmm. 60,000. The volunteer system was based on state quotas. Um, There's so much enthusiasm that Mm -hmm. a few days later, a few weeks later, I guess, McKinley will actually expand that to 125,000 volunteers. Oh, wow. And these are these are kind of federal volunteers, where they're volunteer soldiers with federally supported officers. So mm-hmm. the most famous, of course, of these would become the first U.S. Volunteer Cavalry, uh, the Rough Riders. Mm, yeah. Um, and but of but what they also allow for is for states to basically offer up their existing militia regiments as volunteers. So oh. they can say, okay, our state quota is thirteen thousand. Mm-hmm. Well, we have a militia of 10,000. Mm. So we're going to offer up our militia as volunteer soldiers, and then we only need to raise 3,000 more. <laughs> it, that works unless those militiamen say no, uh, because, again, they can they can refuse. There's no federal way to oh, wow. force them into service. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a couple cases, um, particularly this happens in Iowa, where they're volunteered, and they say, well, we'll only go if we can stay as a regiment. You know, mm-hmm. you can't break us up. We're, right. we're staying as the as the fourth Iowa infantry and, it's, mm-hmm. and the federal government says, well, we don't need you as a red, we need your, we need to spread some people out. So there's this back and forth. Um, and basically the mobilization itself becomes just a complete debacle. Oh. Uh, they, they have some mobilization stations set up across the country. Um, 
kind of strategically located to try to, to the idea is to funnel people into these kind of encampments. Um, for example, one is at uh, Chickamauga, Georgia, mm-hmm. kind of funnel them there, um, have them encamp for a while, and then transport mm-hmm. them down to Tampa Bay to disembark for Cuba. Mm-hmm. It, everything just gets bogged up. It just becomes a, a fiasco. Um, transportation, supply, just the logistics of it completely break down, and Tampa Bay becomes just the site of complete chaos oh, wow. uh, as all these men, materiel, are just streaming into uh, Tampa Bay, and, and basically a town that has like three rail lines, and so the railroads are just completely oh, wow. backed up. It was it, it did not go well. Mm-hmm. And b- but eventually, how many people um, were, were raised? Eventually, I mean the the, the ultimate. Sci- I mean, the 125,000 volunteers do come through. Mm-hmm. So the Army will, at the time, go from, again, that 26,000 to mm-hmm. by the time, uh, basically by the time the, the actual war ends, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. the size of the Army is up to about 120,000, and then it's going to reduce back down, um, and a lot of those volunteers are going to be allowed to go home. Uh, but it will, it, it does expand pretty rapidly. Mm-hmm. So it, it sounds to me, the way you've explained it, that there, when we need, we realized we needed to raise an army. They went back to the Civil War model, is, is what it looks like or sounds like. Yeah, they, they kind of went back to what they knew. And part of the reason for that is there were no federal laws. There was no equivalent at the time of today, the, the National Defense Authorization Act. Mm-hmm. Um, that just didn't exist. So there was no federal process. There was no known process for right. for raising the army in a in a kind of a systematic manner because prior to this the only time the united states ever had to do this was during the the civil war mexican war and they were able to do it through volunteers so i guess the point of this is using history to guide to guide them you know and we see that recurring over and over and over again but so was there anything innovative about this process not much uh it was again the process of mobilization was kind of backward Mm-hmm. Uh, what it's going to do, though, is this is going to put the Secretary of War, Russell Alger, uh, really in the hot seat. Um, and a lot of the problems, and this is something I think we're going to talk about more in another segment, mm-hmm. um, but a lot of the problems of the mobilization, a lot of the shortcomings, they, they expose the, the lack of kind of a systematic process. Mm-hmm. And so what's going to come after the reforms that come in the early 20th century, uh, Russell Alger even being being replaced by Elihu Root, mm-hmm. um, that's all as a result of this. Um, okay. So as we're entering the conflict, talk about the weapons. Um, what, what rifles were we using? What, um, any new artillery pieces? What, what was the technology like? Yeah, so the technology had come a long way since the Civil War. Uh, the United States was slow to adopt a lot of that. Um, by 1898, the regular army... And a lot of the militia was using the Krag Jorgensen rifle, which was uh, the first time the U.S. Army ever adopted a, a smokeless powder, magazine-fed, bolt-action rifle. Um, it was fairly functional. Uh, that was what most of the Army had, at least the regular Army, used uh, that rifle. Machine guns were really not on the really not quite there yet, but uh, Gatling guns were certainly popular in the U.S. Army. Oh. Uh, one, of the, one of the places where the Army was actually well behind the curve was uh, with artillery, field artillery. Oh. Um, the U.S. Army had not adopted a modern field piece yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 
the French, the the Europeans um, were using kind of, you know, if you think of the French 75 millimeter artillery piece, right? That's out now, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a, it has a recoil mechanism. It uses smokeless powder, uh, all mm-hmm. these things. Uh, the U.S. was still using um, basically older style mm-hmm. field artillery with mm-hmm. black powder. Um, oh, and that's going to be a problem during a couple of the, uh, the battles in mm-hmm. Cuba, actually, because the Spanish are actually, though they are a much smaller force, they're actually much better equipped because mm-hmm. they're using modern European uh, artillery pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, some militia units will go to war using older model Springfields, which uh, uh, they weren't the single-shot muzzle loaders anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, they were breech loaders, but they still used black powder. Um, mm-hmm. So there, there's there's a gamut of kind of the technology. Okay, so there wasn't a standardization yet in in the regular force. Not yet. They're trying to get there, but there's just a lot of and this again is one of the supply and logistics issues where there's just a lot of debate over what they needed. And mm-hmm. when the army was mostly a frontier force, mostly a constabulary between the end of the Civil War and 1898, why do they need? to spend all this money on these right. modern field pieces? Why do they need, why does Congress need to spend all this money on updating an army when there's no more frontier? Mm-hmm. So it, it's really, it, the army would love to have these modern things, right. um, but Congress was really a little uh, stingy when it came to funding. So now let's talk about the actions in Cuba. <clears throat> what was the, the strategy and the tactics used there? And, and talk about some of the key battles. Mm-hmm. So basically the army is going to kind of fight a, a 19th century style war. The idea is being, you know, mm-hmm. capture, capture the capital, um, okay. defeat the enemy forces in the field and, and, and capture territory. Uh, the, the, the war actually starts in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. The first major battle is a naval battle. Uh, this you've probably heard of, you know, Commodore George Dewey's um, mm-hmm. battle at Manila, May. That's going to be in May of 1898. So only okay. a few days after war is declared. Um, which is a, a complete um, American victory there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dewey is going to go on to escort uh, Emilio Aguinaldo, who's who's in exile in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. He was a Filipino uh, rebel leader. He's going to bring him yeah. back into the Philippines. That's going to be something we'll talk about in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but in Cuba, the idea is, again, land, uh, basically capture a landing zone, and then move inland and move on Santiago. Mm-hmm. Uh when they land, uh, Major General William R. Shafter is put in command of the Fifth Corps, uh, which will oversee operations. Um, he's expecting kind of a, a fight. Uh, the landings actually go pretty smoothly. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting on the ships in Tampa Bay, getting them from Tampa <laughs> Bay to right. Cuba, not so much. But once they landed there, uh, the landings were pretty pretty smooth. There wasn't a lot of resistance there. In Santiago? It, and this is um, off of the uh, – uh, the, t- the towns are actually um, uh, – Saboini and um, I can't remember the other. Okay. It's, they're not quite to Santiago yet. They got to move inland to get to Santiago. Right, and I know Guantanamo Bay. This is where Guantanamo Bay. Yeah, the, Marine, the, the Marines had landed at Guantanamo Bay actually yeah. a little earlier, okay. um, and they had captured that area. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's basically the situation. It's they start landing in twenty, like the end of June, twenty second, twenty third okay. of June. Um, there's a small skirmish on June twenty third near uh, Siboney, and basically what that's going to do is General Joseph Wheeler, Major General Mm -hmm. Joseph Wheeler, who is the commander of the Cavalry Division. Now, Joseph Wheeler 
was actually a Confederate general during the Civil War. Uh, he, like General Shafter, oh. are, are definitely up in age. Mm-hmm. Um, he was brought back to be a general of volunteers in this kind of effort of reconciliation, right? Mm-hmm. Showing the okay, the Civil War is behind us now. Right. Look, even a former Confederate is now fighting, wearing mm-hmm. the United States Army blue. Um, he kind of ignores some of the orders. It's not <laughs> quite sure whether it's him or whether it's some of the people under him. But he was sort of told, hey, be, be kind of cautious as you move from the landing area inland. We don't want you, you know, avoid a major conflict because mm-hmm. Shafter really wanted to make sure his entire army was there. The mm-hmm. entire Fifth Corps had landed before any engagements were brought on. Right. Wheeler's troops under him, the cavalry divisions, including the 1st Cavalry, 1st U.S. Cavalry Rough Riders, uh, which were commanded by uh, Colonel, then-Colonel Leonard Wood. Mm. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt was actually his second command, mm-hmm. though he was kind of the face of the, of the regiment. Um, they're going to move a little further than they probably should have. They kind of ignore mm. some skirmishers. They kind of ignore uh, the, the Cuban or the Spanish scouts. And on the 24th, they're going to be ambushed in what will become known as the Battle of Las Guasimas. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a draw. Um, mm. Because the Spanish are so outnumbered, they will they will retreat. Um, but they actually inflict more casualties than uh-huh. uh, the U.S. did. Um, and that's kind of the first sort of clash of any kind of mm-hmm. sizable forces. Mm-hmm. Um, but regardless of that, in early July, um, Shafter is ready to move. So about 15,000 U.S. regulars and volunteers uh, will start moving towards Santiago. And they're going to move inland through these jungles. Uh, yellow fever, malaria mm-hmm. is incredible. The rates of, are incredibly right. high. Um, and they are going to engage in two kind of key battles in both fought on July 1st. Uh, the battle of uh, one that we all kind of, the more famous one, San Juan Hill, mm-hmm. and the second is El Caney or El Cane. Mm-hmm. Um, Shafter hopes to capture El Cane first. He wants that to be basically a rear point of operations. He's going to send Brigadier General Henry Ware Lawton uh, with his division there. Um, Lawton outnumbers, there's about, he has about 6,900 men. Oh, wow. There's about 500 Spanish regulars and another 100 or so loyal to Spain Cubans. Mm-hmm. Um, they are going to hold out. Uh, so Lawton attacks multiple times, and the Spanish are well entrenched, and they hold out. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, they only kind of break after multiple taps when they effectively run out of ammunition. Oh, okay. And this yeah. is one of those points where, where I mentioned the artillery. Mm-hmm. Lawton's artillery is using black powder. Those become targets because the uh-huh. well-entrenched Spanish can simply get in, in their trenches, look for the powder, and then target oh, wow. their their artillery, which mm-hmm. is using smokeless powder, mm. on the black powder. So counter-battery. So basically counter-battery yeah. fire. And some of the tactics at the time and the, the doctrine that the U.S. Army had was that artillery batteries would be embedded with infantry regiments. Mm. So the infantry would be basically huddled around the artillery rather than in front of it or behind it. And wow. so casualties started to mount because the, the counter-battery fire was just mm-hmm. basically hitting the infantry that was huddled around the... Yeah. Um, and that's going to happen both there and at San Juan mm-hmm. Heights as well, uh, a little more mm-hmm. um, casualty rates there. Mm-hmm. But but even though Shafter wanted to capture Al Khane first, 
he orders the attack on on the heights uh, at San Juan Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, this is where you know the two the two major fights: San Juan Hill, Kettle Hill. Uh, mm-hmm. it, some of the famous actions are going to happen here, right? The Rough Riders capture Kettle Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, at the, I think he's a captain, but uh, John J. Pershing is right. there. Yeah. He's with uh, the tenth. In, uh, 10th Cavalry, which is uh, the Buffalo Soldiers and All Black Regiment, uh, they're going to suffer extremely high casualties. Mm-hmm. Um, What's the 9th there, too, or is it just the 10th of the Buffalo Soldiers? believe the 10th. I, okay. I, I could be wrong yeah. on that, though, and don't quote mm-hmm. me on that one. Yeah. Um, but he, they, they're going to suffer incredibly high casualty rates, mm-hmm. uh, especially among the officers. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of it was because of their location. They were kind of bogged down. They're not getting good orders to move, and it's sort of mm-hmm. like, we're here. And again, the Spanish artillery is just raining on them. Yeah. Um, the, the kind of... The, the weapon that's going to be the most effective for the U.S. is going to be the Gatling gun. Mm-hmm. Once, for example, they capture Kettle Hill... Uh, and the Rough Riders, again, that was kind of Leonard Wood and Theodore Roosevelt were kind of like, we're sitting ducks where we are. We have mm-hmm. to decide, are we going to pull back or attack this hill? And it's like, well, let's attack the hill. Um, so did they attack San Juan or Kettle Hill? They were on Kettle Hill, okay. actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but once they capture, capture that, they're able to put uh, artillery, or not artillery, but Gatling guns and things mm-hmm. up there. And then that's going to allow them to kind of have a better position. Mm-hmm. Um, and after a while, the Spanish will just simply, due to out, being outnumbered, will retreat. And that kind of opens the way to Santiago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Shafter is going to order his troops to move in. At the same time, the Navy is going to basically block the exits from Santiago. Mm-hmm. So as the Spanish trying to retreat, the Navy basically blocks that, and they're forced to uh, eventually capitulate. Mm-hmm. Um, the fighting just around the heights, though, uh, there's going to be basically on the U.S. side about 200 killed and another roughly 1,200 wounded mm-hmm. um, in mm-hmm. the day and a half of fighting on the wow. heights around Oh wow! So when you say the Spanish capitulated, was that uh, all their forces in Cuba? Or was there, was so so? It's, it's going to be Cuba at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to you know after the Battle of Santiago, which again is mostly a naval battle on July third. Uh, then it just becomes sort of formulaic. Uh, there's General Shafter is in Santiago. There's negotiations going on, and over the next month, uh, they're going to work out Spanish capitulation. Uh, there's U.S. troops who land in Puerto Rico as well. Mm-hmm. There's a lot less intense fighting there, mm-hmm. but there are some skirmishes. Um, this is going to involve Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the same is kind of going on in the Philippines. There's actually a, a, some ground combat going on there. Right. Um, as I mentioned, though, remember, Dewey brings Aguinaldo back, so the Cuban or the Filipino rebels are, are definitely supporting mm-hmm. the U.S. work there. Um, and by December of 1898, the Treaty of Paris is signed. But for all intents and purposes, what William McKinley would call his splendid little war, the Cuban asp- the Cuban part of the Spanish-American right. War is, is over by August of, of 1898. Wow. So that, that was relatively quick. So from, from mobilization to deployment to winning those battles, uh, it was, that was really quick. Yeah, really, if you, if from April to end of April to end of August. Yeah. Um, and, and that's going to, of course, feed into this this kind of idea of, you know, the American, um, uh, the abilities of the mm-hmm. military to do this. Uh, and part part of the, part of their ability to do it so quickly, mm-hmm. even though it was basically an undertrained, unprepared force, was yeah. that they just vastly outnumbered the, the okay. Spanish there. There's numbers of people. All right. So then um, at least in that part of the world, um, America gains an, an ally in, in Cuba. We we get Guantanamo Bay. This is 
I think it's important to know because Guantanamo was in today. It's still in the news a lot. So yeah, and and actually there was uh, there were some congressional dealings going on here, and one of the one of the the way to get the authorization for war allowed even was that um, they agreed right away to not annex Cuba because mm-hmm. some of the criticism right off the bat was, oh, they're just right. doing this to gain Cuba. Mm-hmm. Well, no, they, right. they they wrote in there that they could not annex Cuba, but they do they do uh, negotiate to maintain mm-hmm. Guantanamo Bay. This is how the U.S. gains uh, territory in the well, – port- this is how they gain Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. Guam, mm-hmm. and uh, the Philippines uh, okay. because from basically then until World War II, the Philippines are – ostensibly under U.S. kind of control. Right. So now let's sh- shift a little bit more to the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you talked about Dewey <clears throat> and that there was some limited action. What was the Army role going on in the Philippines at the time? So the Army is going to, shortly after the Battle of Manila, mm-hmm. the Army is going to send over, uh, start sending over over soldiers um, uh, by the thousands. They're going to go on these convo- on these ships from basically disembark from San Francisco, uh, refit either in Hawaii or Guam, mm. and then move up into the... And are these troops that were used in Cuba? Not u- not usually, no. These okay. were these were soldiers who typically did not see action in Cuba. Uh, they were mobilized specifically for um, this purpose. Mm. And in some cases, there were soldiers who were slated to go to Cuba. But mm-hmm. because the war there, the fighting there ended so quickly, they were sent... To San Francisco and would okay. come in the in the subsequent waves mm-hmm. uh, into the Philippines after the war is over. Um, so, like I said, there's there's some there's some fighting around. Uh, there's some limited combat action, um, but by December of 1898, uh, the war is declared over. The Spanish cede control mm-hmm. the Philippines, um, and mm-hmm. basically by this point, it, it becomes. A U.S. territory. Right. Uh, the question becomes what to do with it, mm-hmm. and this is where the subsequent problems are going to develop. Um, Aguinaldo and other Filipinos believed that the United States was there to rid them of this Spanish colonial overseer. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did not expect the United States to stick around once <laughs> they defeated uh, mm-hmm. the Spanish. Um, and, w- and what was the American intentions? Did <clears throat> there were the the American intentions really were uh, to open up better trade corridors mm. to East Asia. Okay. Um, that's really what a lot of this was about. It was about mm. having the ability to set up uh, basing operations, just to have these easy markets to East Asia, particularly with China. Uh, this is right around the same time of the Boxer Rebellion. Uh-huh. Um, so there's all these these different kind of moving pieces, and really what the U.S. intentions are is to open up the Pacific. Today we'd call the kind of the Pacific theater, but this mm-hmm. this would include again the Philippines, Hawaii, Guam, all these mm-hmm. territories. The United mm-hmm. States is kind of is kind of annexing out mm-hmm. there in an effort to to really advance trade opportunities. So that's right. what they're really mm-hmm. wanting to do. What was there an attempt to annex the Philippines? Well, this was sort of not so much annexation as it was the territory was ceded in the in mm-hmm. the Treaty of Paris, so it mm-hmm. now becomes a U.S. kind of protectorate. Okay. Um, and so it, it it's not annexation in the same way that Hawaii was annexed, mm-hmm. but it's sort of this is ours now. Okay. Um, and we're going to use this area as we see fit, um, and that's what's going to kick off what becomes known as the Filipino insurrection, mm-hmm. which will go in from mm-hmm. eighteen early eighteen ninety nine. Um, 
till 1902. Oh, wow. uh, officially. Um, wow. And and again, it was, it was sort of uh, two days before the Senate actually ratifies the Treaty of Paris. So in February of 1899 is when Aguinaldo's forces first attack uh, U.S. soldiers stationed there because wow. it's kind of like it just mm-hmm. it changes to them. It's just another imperial foe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Um, what ha- would happen with the insurrection and, and what was the army role? Because th- didn't Pershing also play a role at this time? He's going to be, he's going to go a little later, okay. uh, but he will eventually find himself in the Philippines mm-hmm. uh, as a lot of others, the, the kind of the, the who's who mm-hmm. of the early 20th century army will be mm-hmm. there. Um, the, the role of the army is basically to try to put down the, the insurrection. Mm-hmm. Uh, U.S. forces are going to go in. It's going to be known as the the, the official. There's kind of two phases uh, from an American perspective of the insurrection. The first phase is Aguinaldo is trying to wage a conventional war. He's okay. he's trying to raise raise a Filipino army uh, to fight against the U.S. Army in conventional sort of static combat, mm-hmm. and that is is a complete. Failure on their side. The, the American, the the U.S. Army is able to just the soldiers are able to just basically completely achieve victory in every in every major uh, battle that that will come mm-hmm. from this. Um, so the second phase is really when they go into this prolonged guerrilla style conflict. Okay. What we would think today more of a, a an insurgency, mm-hmm. um, that type of fighting, and the U.S. official. Um, program is going to be known as a benevolent assimilation. Oh, the uh, that was that was that uh, Major General Elwell Otis came up with that. He was the first uh, kind of commander there. He would eventually become the military governor of the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Um, he he's actually going to be replaced by Arthur MacArthur, Douglas's father, Arthur oh, yeah. MacArthur Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, the idea is basically we're going to fight. The insurrection and treat it very harshly. So, in mm-hmm. the if you're an insurrectionist, you're going to, an insurgent. You're going to be rooted out. We're going to fight you um, as we would anywhere. And, and then, but the benevolent side of it is, but we're going to do these great things for the Philippines. We're going mm-hmm. to build roads and schools and hospitals. And that sounds vaguely familiar. To yeah, it, more it's <laughs> right. Uh, the, the the words kind of change. <laughs> the nation building at the same time, or winning hearts and minds right. is another okay. phrase. Um, and that's what the attempt is made. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it really does have a, an effect. It really does mm-hmm. work. Um, when Arthur MacArthur comes in and replaces Otis in 1900, he's going to authorize uh, General Frederick Funston to lead an expedition, at, which ultimately captures Aguinaldo. Oh. Um, and basically by that point, uh, the insurrection just kind of starts to, to kind of wane down. Um, it's officially declared over in 1902, though it's not really, there's still some parts, particularly mm-hmm. the, uh, the, um, the Southern Philippine mm-hmm. islands where, um, there's a, a large Moro or Muslim population okay, there. Yeah. Um, they're going to be. They're going to hold out for much longer. There's going to be. That's where. That's where uh, General Pershing, Pershing will find himself in 1901. Um, and there's some atrocities committed on both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of these are well documented. Um, right. But effectively, the insurrection portion of it, the official insurrection, is over by 1902. But the U.S. is going to be, remain pretty heavily occupied in the Philippines for mm-hmm. some time to come. I mean, over the next, from 1902 until really the eve of American entry into World War I, mm-hmm. uh, 
if you're a soldier in the regular army, there's a pretty good chance you're going to do a rotation through the Philippines. Oh, wow. Um, it's, yeah. And they sent, they even created a volunteer corps to go specifically. You would volunteer for oh. service in the, in the Philippines. And now with the Spanish-American War and the Philippine insurrection, um, is this the army? I, I mean, this is America expanding overseas, and there had been diplomatic things and um, – but is, is this now, you know, the army as a um, as an overseas um, element? It, it it really is it's the uh, beginning of that. It's not just the. I mean, this of course the Navy, uh, yeah. Marine Corps right. are involved in in this as well. The Marine Corps, especially in in kind of the Caribbean area. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, this is really the start of of a permanent presence of the U.S. Army in. Mm -hmm overseas territories yeah. and really i mean that's going to be from this period onward pretty constant there's not mm -hmm. really i don't think there's ever a moment um after mm -hmm. 1898 where there yeah. aren't u.s soldiers permanently stationed somewhere overseas because you also mentioned the the boxer rebellion so um i know we didn't plan on that but uh, can you briefly describe what happened there because that was the same time frame it's the same time frame uh this is the boxer rebellion was effectively another case of the same thing but in china mm -hmm. um mostly it, the it wasn't really against american imperialism there as it was against uh, british and european imperialism yeah, i think it was seven different uh, uh nations yeah and and they're gonna request multiple support and the u.s is gonna throw some support behind it per, again mm -hmm. because of the idea of wanting these access to these um these ports yeah and uh it, it, the u.s is gonna have a, a limited contingent of soldiers mm -hmm. who go over uh there's a few operations that they are engaged in um and at the end of the day this is how mm -hmm. for the next hundred years the yeah. british gain um hong kong mm -hmm. um and it, it's it's considered a, a, a victory for the kind of the european right. and, and american sides um there, there's a it's not a heavily it's not we're not talking, you know, tens of thousands of American soldiers here. We're right. talking a small kind mm -hmm. of overseas mm -hmm. contingent. Yeah, and I think the battles, it was like three months or something. And yeah, it's in it's, and out. But, yeah. um, and a few medals of honor. Uh, yeah. Uh, there, now, so. granted, at the time, uh, that was the only medal you could get. Okay. Uh, oh. so, well, that's uh, an interesting point as well. <laughs> so, yeah, the Medal of Honor was the only medal for valor that mm -hmm. was issued. So uh, yeah. there weren't a lot of other options. But I believe that the, uh, the American contingent was sent from the Philippines. So they yes. took folks from the Philippines over to the Boxer Rebellion, and then, you know, three months later, they all, I think most of them returned back. But interesting to know, it's the same time frame, because I think that was the uh, spring and summer of 1900. Yeah, that's all Boxer. going on right around the, mm -hmm. yep. All right, well, good. Well, no, so at the end of the conflict, the Spanish-American War, the Philippine Insurrection, how did the Army change? What were, um, what were the lessons learned, and how did we move forward? What's going to happen, and this is kind of, I, I don't want to get too deep into this, because I think mm -hmm. we'll talk about this in our time, but... Uh, the, the, as I, as I mentioned earlier, Russell Alger is out as Secretary of War. He is replaced by Elihu Root, a lawyer, uh, not a lot of military experience, not any military experience, mm -hmm. after, actually, but um, he understands legalities, he understands bureaucracy. And he's going to push over the next few years, from 1899 through about 1903-04, a series of reform efforts that are going to completely reshape the way the United States Army functions. It's going to include uh, creating a general staff for the first time. Hmm. It's going to include uh, building up the Army War College. It's going to include staff improving the branching schools, so for uh, hmm. artillery, um, infantry, etc. It's going to involve 
reforming the National Guard and creating a way for the National Guard to actually be part of the yeah. federal system. And um, it's also going to involve breaking, trying to break the hold of the bureau system because at mm-hmm. the time, the bureau, so quartermaster, transportation, adjutant general, all those kind of, that there were seven kind of independent army bureaus that mm-hmm. all had a commanding general oh. or they all had a general and they were all sort of independent of the, there was no central structure holding it together. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of infighting and a lot of like competing for resources, which mm-hmm. that that's going to, that's part of the reason that the supply, transportation, mm-hmm. logistics, all that was bogged down. So yeah, a lot of lessons learned from the Spanish American war and now the need to maintain more of an army. So a- after the war, we didn't go back down to 26,000. Right. The, the army is going to be steady at about 60,000. Um, it's never, it's not ever fully it's authorized at 60, mm-hmm. about 60,000. Okay. Um, but it's going to stay about 60,000 authorized soldiers mm-hmm. until the eve mm-hmm. of World War One, where that authorization strength is going to go up. Um, it, it doesn't really get, again, it doesn't mm-hmm. quite get filled. Uh, at the time, I mean, if you, you think about it, the Army is not a great job. It's not like <laughs> it was today. Um, yeah. It's uh, officers who get a certain modicum of respect. They're coming from West Point. They're mm-hmm. they're treated as sort of, you know, this, this kind of a more noble profession in a lot of ways. Right. But for a lot of soldiers, it's not it, for a lot of enlisted men. It's not really it's the place life. to be. It's a tough life. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of immigrants. A lot of uh, it, I think English is the second language for a, a huge portion oh, yeah. of soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, a criminal element. This is a time when yeah. you could get away from. You know, you do something shady. You yeah. can go to go, war or go to jail. Go to right, or just join the army and change yeah. your name and, and disappear yeah. for a while and uh, give you the opportunity to be all you can be. Yeah, there we are. All right. Well, now. Um, Shifting gears a little bit, because during this same time frame, there were a couple of other significant things that were going on, and the Army was uh, was heavily involved in or, or um, took a, a major leading role. Medicine. You mentioned earlier in Cuba the problems with yellow fever and malaria, and that, in fact, I think we had more deaths in Cuba uh, during the Spanish-American War uh, from disease than we did from combat. Oh, and and by a wide margin. Yeah. Um, at one point, there was, during the, after the major combat operations had ended, it was estimated there was about 75% of the remaining occupation force that was unfit for duty due to illness. Wow. Um, and the illnesses were pretty much all tropical diseases, yellow fever, malaria. Um, so it was bad. It was a mm-hmm. bad situation. Uh, mm-hmm. Part of the reason that the, the, withdrawal from Cuba happens so quickly is because of the disease. Um, And what's going to happen is, is so Walter Reed and a team of of doctors are going to... He was major at the time. He was a major. Major Walter Reed, uh, army doctor. Yes, an army medical uh, doctor, army Mm -hmm. surgeon. And he's going to go in and he's going to test a theory that was actually put forward by a Cuban expert, mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't know if expert's the right word, but mm-hmm. uh, Carlos Finlay. And what Finlay theorized was that mosquitoes or mm-hmm. bugs were carrying the pathogen that, ca- mm-hmm. that caused yellow fever. Because up until then, they thought it was what? Human contact? They thought it was human contact. They thought it was, um, this is kind of the, the era still of miasma, bad air. Uh, oh, it's caused yeah. by mm-hmm. um, filthy you know, water right. that gets in the air. So all the precautions that we were taking 
weren't really doing anything. Not really. Sometimes in, in some some cases they actually did in some ways help. Like if you're if you're do, if we're really concerned about sanitation, you're going to oh, limit yeah. you're going to limit the mosquitoes. Mm-hmm. But it they were so what did help? They didn't realize why it was helping. Yeah. Um, it, but this is the time. This is only a few years after Louis Pasteur comes up with you know germ theory. So mm-hmm. people are starting to come around to this idea that that people are get sick not because of bad air, mm-hmm. but because there are actual bacteria or viruses that you can't see mm-hmm. that cause disease. So that's going to play into this. And so yeah, Walter Reed and his medical team are going to just are going to prove that it is mosquitoes, a specific type of mosquito that carries uh, yellow fever. And later on, that's going to be discovered as well, that the parasite that a certain type of mosquito carries is what causes malaria. Um, So over, so the U.S. Army is going to create a yellow fever commission in 1900. Mm -hmm. And over the next few years, they are going to go about, uh, and they're going to basically wage war against mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. Um, And they all but eradicate yellow fever in Cuba and later in Panama um, over the course of a few years just wow. by once they discover that it's the mosquitoes that are causing the disease mm-hmm. they can then go about trying to eradicate the mosquitoes yeah and this is I think some of the first times that we start seeing mosquito nets you know mm-hmm. around sleeping areas fum- fumigating getting rid of uh, water that doesn't need to be around you know? absolutely yeah I mean, the mosquito net is going to become a general issue item in yeah. the Philippines after this right well you know um Serving overseas in tropical areas, I was always issued a mosquito net. Yeah, it's so still, it's still to this day. Um, so a lasting impact, uh, not just for the military, but for, for the world. So um, a, a huge adv- advance for uh, disease control yeah, uh, throughout the world. Um, so, yeah, so a really important aspect I just wanted to bring out. But then also our involvement in Panama at the same time. So if you can just talk about that. Yeah, so uh, Panama was prior to early 20th century was part of Colombia. Mm-hmm. Um, and there had been French efforts to try to build a canal for years um, to, to basically minimize the time between the two oceans uh, for shipping and travel. Um, due to those diseases we just mentioned, it was mm-hmm. very difficult to get this job done and France effectively abandons the problem. Uh, now President Theodore Roosevelt, mm-hmm. uh, after William McKinley's assassination, sees the opportunity to want to take control of that project. The problem is the Colombians aren't really too keen on that. Mm. Um, but there is a Panamanian independence movement that Theodore Roosevelt, mostly again, a naval effort, but certainly uh, supports, let's just say. And Talk so, softly and carry a big stick. And, right. And, and when warships show up on the, on the coast mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, you know, basically tell the Colombians, you know, we're on the Panamanian side. You might not necessarily have right. to shoot a lot of, of rounds mm-hmm. to help. And I think this is when that term gunboat diplomacy mm-hmm. came into effect as well. Yes. Yeah. And so basically the U.S. is going to gain the approval of the new Panamanian government, uh, again, sometimes through gunboat diplomacy, mm-hmm. but uh, to, to build this canal. Um, so the Corps of Engineers, the Army Corps of Engineers, is going to overtake the project. Um, oh. It doesn't. There's some problems there at first. It kind of, it kind of slow moving. Mm-hmm. In 1907, um, uh, George W. Gaithels, General Gaithels, mm-hmm. is going to replace. Uh, I can't remember his first. Uh, his first name is escaping now, but uh, Gorgas. Mm-hmm. Um, he's going to replace him as kind of the man in charge in mm-hmm. the, in in Panama, and he's going to see the project through to completion. Uh, it'll be completed by 1914. Um, it, it's it's not. 
the army, there's not a lot of soldiers building the canal, right? It's it's the Corps right. of Engineers overseeing the project. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, most of the work is being done by the Panamanian population, uh, sometimes under fairly harsh conditions. Mm -hmm. uh, Gaithils is going to ease that a bit. Um, part of the reason it was slow moving was because his predecessor was a little more harsh. Mm -hmm. uh, Gaithils is going to kind of understand a little bit of how to balance uh, work versus, you know, kind of... Mm -hmm. The intensity of it and things like benevolence that. again right? yeah in a, in a way yeah absolutely um and but it, it is a i mean you can't it, no one can deny the success of the prod yeah. of, the, of the results um that by 1914 um the canal is open and and it's mm -hmm. in under american control until the I think 1979 is yeah the card administration the is when yeah, they turned it back, turned it back over, over to right. them, but yeah okay great well good you know thanks so much and you know for this time period is there anything else that you can think of that um, we didn't cover no I think that about covers what uh we wanted to talk about all right well terrific well, thanks so much but before we close it's time for our segment called Hua Trivia. So what piece of significant army trivia about this time period can you share? Yeah, uh, again, I don't know how, how whoa this is, but I'll just say that when we talk about the Philippines, something I think a lot of people don't realize, we kind of touched on a little bit, but the, the governors and the military commanders in the Philippines over from 1900 or so to about 1914 became a, a veritable who's who of the army. Oh, yeah. uh, so John J. Pershing, mm -hmm. Hugh L. Scott, uh, J. Franklin Bell, Adna Chaffee, Arthur MacArthur, right? Mm -hmm. They're all going to serve in in that area. So all the early chiefs of staff of the army, all the wow. uh, the commanders who go to World War One, the, the the kind of the senior commanders, they all had some time, uh, kind of learning some operational yeah. capacity mm -hmm. in the Philippines. So it's just mm -hmm. I, I think that it's just how important that was is something that a lot of people don't don't realize. It's something mm -hmm. that a lot of Americans kind of tend to overlook. But the Filipino insurrection and the subsequent yeah. kind of occupation was key for developing a lot of the, the mm -hmm. leadership in the army. It's interesting because uh, by comparison, you know, we often look at the uh, uh, war with Mexico as the training ground for the civil war leaders. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah. All right, great. Well, good. Well, thank you so much, uh, uh, Matt, for your discussion and insights today about the Spanish-American War and and um, Panama Canal and Walter Reed, um, all, I think, very, very important um, aspects of Army history. And if anyone wants to learn more about the Spanish-American War, Panama, or Walter Reed, or learn more about Army history in general, then I encourage you to explore our website at history.army.mil. And if you want to experience Army history every day, then visit our social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please join us every week for this podcast uh, where you'll get more in-depth discussions as we cover topics from all eras of U.S. Army history, examining battles, soldier experiences, equipment, weapons, and tactics. Thanks for joining us today on the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. For the Center of Military History, I'm Lee Reynolds, and until next time, we're history. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or opinions of the U.S. Army or Department of Defense. For more information about the Army's proud history and heritage, go to history.army.mil.